0: Today on the Matt Wall Show, a new report shows how government handouts have enabled record numbers of able-bodied young men to opt out of the workforce entirely and indefinitely. But why would young men want to opt out of work in the first place? Isn't that the real problem? We'll talk about that today. Also, the Virginia's governor's race will be um, settled tonight. Terry McAuliffe made his closing case to voters last night, and I don't think it will prove effective. Plus, the Supreme Court refused to step in and hear a case from a Catholic hospital that was sued after refusing to perform a sex change operation. And Sleepy Joe falls asleep at the UN Climate Summit. Finally, Atlanta Braves fans are still doing the tomahawk chop, uh, even though the media has repeatedly informed them that it's racist and they need to stop. But is it really racist? We'll talk about that today and much more on The Matt Walsh Show. Well, you know, the holidays are basically upon us, or approaching quickly anyway, and uh, you gotta start thinking about, don't wait till the last minute, start thinking about what kind of gifts you can get this holiday season and uh, this Christmas. And here's one, Legacy Box. Legacy Box is simply the best way to preserve your past. Send your Legacy Box filled with old home movies and pictures, they'll do the rest, digitizing your moments onto a thumb drive, the cloud, or DVD. It's just like magic. If you're, uh, if you're like most people, there's one box that you'd run back into your burning house to grab. And it's that box filled with videotapes, film reels, photos. Those are sentimental, meaningful, irreplaceable moments. You can save these from being destroyed by floods or fires. As I've already revealed, I wouldn't run into the burning house to save a dog or a panda, but I would. Go, I, w- I would run right past the dog and panda and grab my box of old home movies instead. And then on, on the way out, I would apologize and say, sorry, I, sorry, Rex, I had to get this instead. Uh, but, why leave it to be destroyed? You just got to use Digital. Uh, you got to use Legacy Box. You send it all to them. They digitize everything. They send it right back to you. They make it easy. They make it simple. So uh, take advantage of this deal right now. Legacy Box is giving our listeners early access to their Black Friday sale. Visit LegacyBox.com Walsh to unlock any uh, an exclusive discount for our Black Friday sale. That's LegacyBox.com Walsh for their best deal of the year. Again, LegacyBox.com Walsh. So I had what has become a familiar experience over the weekend. I ordered a pizza from a pizza place that shall go unnamed. I was given a delivery time of 40 to 45 minutes after an hour with no pizza in sight. I called to check on its progress. No answer. Called again 15 minutes later. No answer. Just not answering the phone at all. After an hour and a half, a little bit more than that, actually, finally, the uh, order arrived with profuse apologies from the delivery guy who explained that no delivery people showed up to work at the location where I ordered. And uh, he had to be called in from a different location to pick up the slack because there were none at that location. And this experience would be just a minor inconvenience and um, not worth discussing or telling you about. Plus, I used to be a pizza delivery guy uh, back in my younger days. So I, I tend to you know, give a lot of leeway. I'm very, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very generous in that way. I'm not going to get mad about a pizza being late. The problem is that um, this is symptomatic of a much larger problem which can be seen and felt all across the country. The worker shortage crisis is especially pronounced in the restaurant and hospitality industries, which means that I've encountered it quite a bit with all the traveling that we've done in recent months. Almost no hotels anywhere have enough housekeepers on staff to keep the rooms clean. That's a fact that hotels will tell you now as part of the standard spiel upon check-in, uh, where they tell you, well, we're not going to send in housekeepers. If you, if, you, if you really need something, you can call us and we'll try to send somebody up to you. Room service is now almost entirely a thing of the past. Not enough workers to keep it going. This is not just anecdotal either. Here's a report from Vox today. It says, employers in almost every industry say they're struggling to find workers, but the situation is especially severe in the leisure and hospitality sector. While workers in these industries are getting paid more than ever, it still doesn't seem like enough. Bars, restaurants, and hotels across the country are posting signs advertising open jobs or asking customers to be patient since they don't have enough staff. In August, the latest available month for openings and turnover data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there were a near record 1.7 million open jobs in leisure and hospitality, 10% of all jobs in the sector, and a record of nearly a million people quitting. And this is happening, again, as it said right there, while wages are higher than they've ever been. Now, this may be a especially significant issue in the leisure and hospitality industries, but the situation isn't much better in most other industries. Big question is, why is this happening? What do we do about it? And as far as that goes, there are a number of important factors that can't be ignored. One of them is vaccine mandates. I mean, that's not helping. That's driven some employees out of their positions or kept qualified applicants away to begin with. But that's not the primary issue here, especially because this is a problem that predates most of these mandates. Uh, The greater issue seems to be that a large and troubling amount of Americans have decided that they don't want to work at all. And government has made that lifestyle feasible for them. It has made that an actual lifestyle choice, something that you can select from the menu of options. One of them is, I'm not going to work. So here's the Daily Wire. It says, a new analysis argues that government welfare policies encourage able-bodied men to opt out of the labor force. Many point to weak wage growth, technological change, or international trade as potential explanations for the low labor force participation rate among young men which has dropped from 97% in 1955 to 89% in 2020. However, Republicans on the Joint Economic Committee argue in their Reconnecting Americans to Benefits of Work report that a significant share of the young men who receive handouts from the government are voluntarily disconnected from work. It says only 12% of inactive, prime-age, able-bodied men said they wanted a job or were open to work. Only 12% among men who are inactive for reasons other than disability, retirement, education, or homemaking, 41% personally received government assistance. One key piece of evidence that suggests labor force trends are driven largely by workers, not employers, is that the decline in prime-age labor force participation has been mostly voluntary, as told by the men themselves. Three out of four disconnected men say they do not want a job. Three out of four. And only 12% of inactive, prime-age, able-bodied men said they wanted a job or were open to it in 2014. If more men are genuinely choosing to stay home with the kids, go to school or retire early, policymakers should not be concerned. But that's not that's not the full explanation here. The report goes on to explain how welfare programs, especially those without work requirements or with work requirements that are easy to fulfill, even without actually trying to find work, you know, you just got to put in the application, show up for the interview, not put in any effort and you could keep the uh, benefits rolling. The report says, well, those that's largely at fault here. Keep in mind that this only tells us about the trends leading up to our current state of affairs. Doesn't factor in the COVID-related handouts, which enabled millions of additional people to stay home for months on end, many of whom have shown no particular desire to return to the working world. The end result leads to a lot more than pizzas being delivered cold and hotel towels not being changed. What lies at the bottom of this flight from work, this rejection of work, I think, is despair and purposelessness. This is both the cause and the effect. So it's a self-perpetuating problem. It's a cycle, vicious cycle. People don't see any real purpose to their existence. They don't see any reason to live. And so they're happy to uh, merely exist, floating by, desiring only to be made comfortable and kept entertained. Now, it's not that getting a job delivering pizzas would itself give your life purpose. That's not the point. It's that working to provide for yourself and your family, if you have one, is what you do when you have intention and purpose in your life. If you have goals, if you have ambition, you would rather get a job, even a menial job, and then get at least one foot on at least the first rung of the ladder. There's also value in work for its own sake. Work is a necessary part of life. As I've explained before, life is work. Your existence requires work to maintain. There's no getting around that. And if you're not going to do it, then someone else will have to do it for you. But there is is dignity and honor in standing at the helm and steering your own ship rather than having the government do it, or more precisely, having the government enlist the taxpayers to do it against their will. But the catch-22 here is that people in despair who could most benefit from the dignity of work are also least likely to care about something like dignity or to pursue it for its own sake. So that is the problem that lies at the bottom of this, and this is what we need to be talking about. We can can look at all the the economic factors, we can look at wages and wage growth, all of these things. Um, That's really window dressing on the real problem, which lies at the foundation of all of this, is that we have... Millions of people, not just young men, but lots of young men especially, who are content, who are fine with staying at home, watching TV, on the internet, playing video games, whatever. That, that's a life. As far as they're concerned, that's, that could be their entire life. And they have no desire for anything anything beyond that, anything greater than that. That's what we need to start speaking to, is that despair and hopelessness. That's in the hearts of so many Americans. Until we address that problem and talk about that problem, none of these things are going to get any better. Now let's get to our five headlines. You know, I tell you about my pillow all the time. And why do I tell you about my pillow? Because because it is... It just it works. What's a pillow supposed to do? It's supposed to help you sleep, it's supposed to have a great night's sleep, and that's what my pillow does, and that's why I uh, I depend on it now. It's almost like an addiction. I can't sleep on anything but my pillow products, um, and uh, that's why if you have not tried my pillow, you got to try it now. And my pillow, they want to give back to our listeners. You can get great discounts on all my pillow products if you go to mypillow.com right now and click on the Radio Listener's Specials. Uh, get deep discounts on MyPillow's mattress, toppers, towels, and so much more. For example, MyPillow is offering a buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. These are top quality sheets that you will love. All MyPillow products come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. It's nice to have the money back guarantee. You're not going to need it, but you do have it there. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Special for the buy one, get one free offer on the Giza sheets and use promo code DAILYWIRE at checkout, or you can call 800-651-1148. You'll also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including pillows, slippers, the MyPillow mattress topper, and MyPillow towel sets, all of that, if you go to MyPillow.com and enter DAILYWIRE or call 1-800-651-1148 and tell them the Daily Wire sent you. That's 1-800-651-1148. All right. So, uh, well, as you can see, by the way, we have got the the Thanksgiving decorations here, um, as because this is this is a thing now on the show. Now we're gonna have decorations for every holiday. And I, and I personally, um, I'm happy that I came in on Monday and we had the Thanksgiving decorations because there are lots of people these days we, that that say, well, as soon as Halloween is over and we get into November, that's when you put the Christmas decorations up. And I got nothing against Christmas decorations. I mean, when it's time for Christmas decorations, I want. I I just want it to look like Christmas exploded in here. I want to have a a giant mechanical Santa right behind me waving on camera the entire time. But it's not Christmas season yet. Uh, It's not even Advent yet. And what I don't like is how Thanksgiving gets cannibalized by Christmas every year. So we are actually doing Thanksgiving decorations on this show. And uh, I do appreciate that. All right, so uh, the... Virginia's race comes to a head today as, uh, as voting is underway and I'm not an optimistic guy, you know, you know that. And, uh, I've, I've come this far without making any predictions. So there's really no reason to make it now, but I will anyway. I, I like Glenn Youngkin's chances. I think he wins, um, tonight. And, uh, I think all of the, all the trends are in his favor All of the the momentum is in his favor. He's got all of the excitement. And going up all the way to the last moment when they were making their their final pitches, their closing cases. So Terry McAuliffe, speaking to a smaller crowd and a noticeably less excited crowd, let's hear what his closing case to the people of Virginia was. As, as, As we know, cultural issues and education became the central focus of the, um, of the race. So Terry McAuliffe, finally speaking to education, closing argument, here's what he has to say. We've got to diversify our teacher base here in Virginia. 50 per- 50% of the students at Virginia schools, K-12, 50% are students of color, and yet 80% of the teachers are white. We all know what we have to do in a school to make everybody feel comfortable in school. So let's diversify. So here's what I'm going to do. We'll be the first state in America. If you'll teach for five years here in Virginia in a high-demand area, that it be geographic or coursework, we will pay room, board, and tuition at any college, any university, any HBCU here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So that's that's what... Terry McAuliffe has for you. There are too many white teachers. So Terry McAuliffe is saying, listen, Virginians, I've heard you. I understand parents. You're worried about education. You're concerned about your kids. You're concerned about what they're being exposed to at school. You want to make sure they're getting a real education. Okay. Um, and so I've heard that. And so what I'm going to do is make sure that there are fewer white teachers because he believes apparently or he is, he is uh, duty-bound to believe, he is required to believe, as a Democrat, that this is the sort of thing that uh, parents wake up worrying about. He thinks that parents in Virginia and across the country, they wake up every day thinking about, man, you know, sending their kids off to school, putting them on the school bus, waving goodbye. The parents are sitting sitting there thinking, oh, oh man, I'm, I'm really worried that there's just too many white teachers at my son's school. That's that's my concern. Yeah, mom and dad sitting around the kitchen table. You know, honey, I'm really worried that uh, Junior is uh, he's just he's around too many white teachers. Uh, I'm worried about the racial makeup of, uh, of of the teachers at his school. That's that's what I'm concerned about. That's what Terry McCullough imagines. So that's his that's his closing case. Um, it wasn't just that, by the way. He also brought in Randy Weingarten. Spoke at uh, Terry McAuliffe's rally last night. Randy Weingarten is the the president of the largest teachers union in America. She's also the most despised figure in education in the country. I mean, she's one of the, the main reasons why schools stayed shut down for 18 months in many places. She never wanted to open the schools back up again. So all of these parents who had to deal with, you know, quote, unquote, remote learning, their kids were on Zoom classes for 18 months, not learning a damn thing. Randy Weingarten, largely responsible for that. Like there there are, I, I have not talked to a single parent who has anything positive to say about their kids' experience on Zoom classes for a year or 18 months or however long it was, depending on where they live. I haven't talked to a single parent. I've had this conversation with many parents about the Zoom classes and how that went. I haven't talked to a single one who said, yeah, that was great. I'm really happy my kids went through that. This is this is all my child needs is just to sit in front of a computer for seven hours and stare at a computer and have this disembodied head speaking back to them, giving them busy work and assignments to do. So Randy Weingarten, largely responsible for that, one of the main voices, at least, Promoting that form of education, and uh, uh, Terry McAuliffe brings her in, A totally despised figure in education, brings her in as his last act before before the um, before the polls open. Incredible, and I'm happy to see it because I think again, I don't want to. I'm afraid I'm going to eat my words on this, but I think that was the nail in his coffin, metaphorically speaking. Uh, I just, if everything happens, and this is a big if, if everything's above board and everyone is playing fair for the most part, I don't see how Terry McAuliffe wins. And once again, that is a big if, especially because um, we we know what the Democrats in Virginia did only a few days ago by sending some Democrat operatives to a Glenn Youngkin campaign event. With tiki torches, pretending to be white supremacists, and that was exposed almost immediately. And then, and then, the uh, Linga project came out and said, "Oh, yeah, just kidding. <laughs> it was a practical joke. Wasn't that funny?" No, that was a fraud that they attempted. And now there's a question about whether or not another fraud was attempted because um, these pictures from a Glenn. This is this was Glenn Youngkin's rally in Loudoun County. Huge turnout. Uh, people very excited. And this is the picture that the media went with. You can see it here on the screen. This is the picture the media went with. All, all the blue checks on, on Twitter were passing this particular image around. And there's a Glenn Youngkin event. And then you could see there somebody in a denim jacket and a cowboy hat with a Confederate flag prominently stitched onto the back of their jacket. Now, I'll, I, I will say, if this person... If this is real and this is someone who sincerely just wears a Confederate flag jacket, um, I don't care. I really don't care, and it doesn't—it has no—it doesn't say anything about Glenn Youngkin. So, if one person decided to show up to a Glenn Youngkin event in a Confederate flag jacket, that doesn't mean anything at all. But you do have to ask questions about how sincere this actually was, especially because of this. Now, here you can see in the other picture. Here's where this guy is standing. So he took a position right leaning against the press pen. So he's got like his calling card that he's showing off to the press right where they're where they're all standing with their, you can see there, with their cameras. And he's showing it to them saying, hey guys, check this out. Can we go back to the other, let's go back to the first picture though. Can we look at this? Hey, you see this denim jacket. It looks like a brand new jacket, no scuff marks or anything. It looks brand new. Um, that the Confederate flag print on the back, the the patch also looks brand new, bright red. So it looks like he just got this jacket, just put the patch on the back, excited to go to the Glenn Youngkin route. He's also got the, the cowboy hat on. He's with some woman who also has a cowboy hat. The only cowboy hats in the crowd, because this is again, Loudoun County, Virginia. Okay. This is not, this is not Texas where you see cowboy hats all over the place. And then the other strange thing is that he's right there in front of the media. has got the Confederate flag thing going on. We have no pictures of the front of his face. Nobody in the media stopped this guy, apparently, to ask him, what's your name? What are you doing here? Tell us about yourself. Why do you have that Confederate flag pin, uh, patch on the back of your jacket? Now, if this was a really, sincerely, a Glenn Youngkin supporter, you don't think the media would be tripping over themselves? I mean, literally tripping over themselves, dogpiling over one another to get to this guy, get his face out there, get his name, and get him on camera talking about why he has the Confederate flag and why he, as a you know supporter of the Confederacy, is also a supporter of Glenn Youngkin. You don't think they'd be incredibly eager to get all that on camera? But oddly enough, the media discovered uh, restraint, and they just they decided to respect this man's privacy. Isn't that nice of them? Not show us his face, not get his name. Now it's pretty pretty obvious. This is another. This is uh, uh, would seem to be another intentional fraud committed by someone. And so that really is their closing argument. It is fraud. Trying to label Glenn Youngkin as a racist. Um, and uh, and then Randy Weingarten, and there aren't enough black teachers. That's Terry McCall's closing argument. Uh, I don't think it'll work for him. I, I do think Glenn Youngkin wins. The excitement, it, its its you, you can't, you know, excitement is something that's, it's not easy to conjure by sheer force of will. It's something that Republicans have historically not been very good at. I mean, Donald Trump, obviously, has been able to get people excited. Other Republicans have not been able to do that. And what's really encouraging about Glenn Youngkin is that he's been able to sort of close that excitement gap and generate some, on a smaller scale, because he's running for governor of Virginia, not president, but on a smaller scale, generate some of that sort of Trumpian uh, excitement. But he's doing it by talking about the issues. He's not doing it by aping and imitating Trump's style. He's not doing it by talking about Trump. So I hope that this is not only a win in Virginia, but, but maybe a little peek into what a post-Trump GOP might look like. Where it's people are mobilized, they're excited, we're talking about the culture, talking about education, we're talking about issues that parents really do care about and wake up thinking about. And crucially, it's a GOP that is not entirely centered around one personality, around one guy. Because the issue with Trump is that when he's on the stage, um, when he's in the conversation, he is the conversation. He needs the only, everything is centered around him and he wants it that way when he's there. But that's never been the way to have a lasting cultural movement that's structured around one personality. If it's gonna mean anything, and if we're gonna make any real changes and any real cultural headway, it has to be much bigger than that, much bigger than one guy. So maybe we're getting a taste of that, Virginia, we'll see. Uh, Okay, next from NBC News, the Supreme Court on Monday turned down an appeal from a Catholic hospital in California that was uh, sued after refusing to perform a hysterectomy for a transgender man, transgender man, i.e. Uh, a, a woman who calls herself a man. The court's denial issued without comment says the lawsuit sends the lawsuit back to state court for further proceedings uh, against the hospital and avoids for now the issue of when claims of religious freedom can trump anti-discrimination laws. Um, Justice Clarence Thomas, Samuel Lito, and Neil Gorsuch said that the court should have taken the case. You notice who's missing from that list Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Kavanaugh were not interested in taking this case. Um, what they said to the hospital is hey, you're on your own. Now, this is when it, when it comes to religious freedom, not just religious freedom, but freedom in general. Because you don't have to be, in fact, I'm a little. I wish they had taken this case, and this is a religious freedom issue. But, you know, I'm I'm concerned about making this only a religious freedom case because when it comes to, you know, quote unquote sex change operations, what they call it now, gender affirmation care, you don't have to be religious to oppose that. If you're a rational, morally decent person, you're opposed to that. You should be opposed to mutilating people in order to conform their delusional perception of themselves, in order to conform their body to their delusions of themselves. No matter matter what your religious affiliation is, including if you have no religious affiliation, you should be opposed to that. So it's not merely a religious freedom issue, but it is also that. And Amy Coney Barrett, who pretty much every conservative was excited about, myself included, not interested in taking the case. Kavanaugh also less of a surprise doesn't want to take the case. Now we've got two big abortion cases that are making their way through the court right now that are being uh, uh, the courts are court is uh, deliberating over right now, including the law down in Texas. And uh, I'm very hesitant to make any predictions there based on the kinds of questions that the very, that the justices are asking as the argu- as these arguments are presented. But there have been potentially a few red flags from Amy Coney Barrett. In fact, at one point, I think she she asked a question, um, referring to Roe v. Wade as a constitutional right in her question. So accepting that premise in the question that she asked, maybe that was a slip of the tongue. Maybe she just she wasn't being uh, careful enough in her wording. But if we're hoping for Roe v. Wade to be overturned, it's it's uh it's concerning to hear her. Accepting it as a constitutional right. I don't know. This is something that I think for a lot of people, it was thought a lot of conservatives that the the Supreme Court picks were Trump's greatest achievement. But the way things are heading right now, it's it's looking like these might end up being his greatest failures. Gorsuch has been surprisingly the most solid of the three, but uh, so far Barrett and Kavanaugh have been huge disappointments. All right, let's see uh, what else we got here. Uh, Elon Musk, this is from Yahoo, it says, Elon Musk, the world's richest man, challenged a United Nations official's claim that just a small percentage of his wealth could help solve world hunger. Musk was responding to comments by David Beasley, director of the UN's World Food Program, who repeated a call last week following an earlier tweet this month asking billionaires like Musk to to step up now on a one-time basis. Beasley specifically called for action from Musk and Amazon.com, co-founder uh, Jeff Bezos, the, the two men atop the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. Just six billion dollars could keep just six billion. Ah, just six billion. Just six billion dollars could keep 42 million people from dying, Beasley said. If the World Food Program using transparent and open accounting can describe on this Twitter thread, this this is from Musk now, he says, if they can describe on this Twitter thread exactly how $6 billion would solve world hunger, I will sell Tesla stock right now and do it. Um, and so far, no one has been able to meet that challenge. That's a fair question. If you're, If you're saying money can solve the problem, then how exactly will it's not good enough to say, well, we'll give the money to this program. Like, how exactly will this money have that effect? And I'm pretty skeptical of that myself because poverty is not merely a money problem at its root, not merely. Um, it's a problem of choice and human will. And when I say that, I am not saying that poor people wake up and say, I want to be poor, and they make the choice to be poor. Uh, But that one way or another, very often, choices lead to poverty, and often, often these are not the choices of the impoverished people. Okay, so for example, much of world hunger in other countries, like in third world countries, is due in large part to corrupt political regimes dictatorships. Okay, so it's not simply that the countries don't have the money, but that corrupt regimes choose to keep their people oppressed. There's a whole lot of hunger and starvation in North Korea. That is not merely a lack of resources, it's that the resources are hoarded by a corrupt political regime. Uh, So that's a choice made by people, not the poor people, but by the corrupt politicians and dictators and people in charge, bureaucracies, Um, Homelessness in America is driven almost exclusively by drug addiction. Drug addiction itself is not a choice. To do drugs to begin with is. Uh, The other part of that picture is mental illness, which, of course, again, is not a choice. But what makes mental illness lead to poverty are the, you know, quote unquote, choices made by those afflicted. Now, these may be choices that you can't be blamed for because you have a mental illness. But the point I'm simply trying to make is that these are all problems that cannot be solved by throwing money at them, because very often in many of these cases, the issue is what people are doing. So if you have, uh, if if we have poverty in a third world country that's run by a corrupt regime, well you can't you can't simply throw money at it because it's not going to go where it needs to go. And we certainly know that with homelessness you know there's a great number of homeless people on the street right now that you could go and hand them a million dollars and they'd still be homeless a week later or the next day i mean they they would they would just be homeless still because the problem isn't that simple so money money is is a part it's it's one of the tools that can be used to address this problem but it's not what fundamentally causes it. But uh, as always, you know we're, we're looking for the simplest possible answers, and we're also looking for for you know easy targets and villains. And so, if we see a lot of poor people in the world, and then we see rich people, it's easy enough to say, "Well, it's their fault. Just you got the money, give it to those people, and everything will be fine." It's not that simple. I wish it were that simple, but but it isn't, and life rarely is. Okay, here's something that is kind of simple. I think um, it's a video taken by a mom who was very proud to take this video and, and put it online for everyone to see. Uh, she is letting her daughter know that um, that that she, the daughter, will soon be able to be vaccinated, and uh, this is supposed to be a heartwarming video based on the young girl's reaction. But I have a, I feel a little bit differently about it. Let's let's watch this.
1: This is my daughter. Hi. She's nine. We're about to blind react to something. Okay. What does that say? Hold on, dear. What does it say? That the COVID vaccine for kids is,
0: next week should be clear for kids through 5 to 11. What does that mean for you? I can... Go with my friends.
1: Yeah.
0: I can finally, you know, go outside. Go to stores.
1: I'm excited. I'm excited, Mark. I thought I was going to be like in a couple months. No, apparently it's next week. I love you, Mom. I love you, too. She's white. You need to get vaccinated. Okay.
0: No, she's why you need to be in prison. You monster. This is another another of those tough ones that I almost regret playing as soon as I play it because I can't. Like I'm running through in my head all of the words and that I want to use and things I want to say. And I, and I have to just, no, nope, can't say that, can't say that, can't say that. And I have to be very careful and selective. You know, if you think I'm, I'm harsh in the things that I say I don't, I't there's like 95 percent of it especially when it comes to these parents and what they do to their kids 95 percent of it has to be left on the mental cutting room floor because I can't say it out loud uh, but that is monstrous and this this is a woman who should be in prison she should have her kids taken away from her um locking your child in a home for 18 months I mean listen to what the girl said she said oh it means I can go outside. This is the kind of thing that, in any other context, if you heard—and we do hear about cases of kids being locked in their home by their crazy, uh, abusive, barbaric parents—and in any other context, when you hear that, you think, "Well, this is this is a this this is horrific abuse. These are kids that need to be taken out of the home. They need to be removed from the home forcibly. They need to be saved from the clutches." of these barbarians in any other context. Um, Except in COVID, somehow it's okay. I mean, taking COVID out of it for a second, let's just imagine that exact same kind of video, except it's, uh, it's the flu. The flu, which, as I've said a million times, is a much greater threat, a more lethal threat, to children like that, that young girl there, then COVID is. And yet if COVID never existed and you heard of a parent who kept their child locked in a home for 18 months for fear of the flu, wouldn't even let them go play outside with their friends, you would say that parent is crazy. This is not simply a, you know a parenting choice, a judgment call. No, that's insane. And you are a danger to your child. Well, it's no different here. How could this be any different? This is worse. This is worse because COVID is less of a threat to the kids. And somehow we just accept this. And meanwhile, that what makes all this all the more, uh, you know, just an additional morbid irony here is that that mother is uh, extremely overweight. Okay, so she has her child locked in in a home really to protect herself because she doesn't want the kid to bring COVID back to her. And so for her own sake to keep herself safe, she keeps the kid locked away. And yet she's that concerned about her safety. uh, But, and she's willing to deprive her child of a childhood, take everything from she will take everything from her daughter rather than deprive herself of milkshakes and French fries. She's so concerned about her health, but she's still got to have the milkshakes and french fries every day. Okay, you, you, you get a physique like that by, by eating fast food like every day. I mean, you have to try. You, you have to try to put that much fat on your body. Not trying to be mean. Well, I am trying to be mean to this particular person anyway, because they deserve it. But yeah, you, you got to try. I mean, you, you have to put in at least no effort whatsoever when it comes to your diet and fitness. And so she's putting in no effort, willing to sacrifice nothing for for health. But to her daughter, she says, you got to sacrifice everything. Repulsive, horrific, terrible. Okay, uh, what else we got? One other thing I want to show you. This is from, um, as we get... As we get closer to Christmas and uh, Thanksgiving is cannibalized and we just skip right over to Christmas, we're going to see a lot of these kinds of uh, posts. And this is from, this is a viral post from someone named Dave. And um, it says, it's November 1st. The war on Christmas has officially begun. Jesus wasn't white. Yep, that's right. Your son of God is not a white man. He's as brown as me. And there's a image of what he imagines Jesus must have looked like and, you know, uh darker skin, and that's 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 his uh, image of what Jesus w- would look like. I just love these kinds of posts, and as I said, as we get closer to Christmas, we're going to see more and more of this. Uh, we're going to see, ah, Jesus wasn't white, and oh, Jesus was a socialist, and Jesus was a, he was an illegal immigrant and a refugee, and they're going to start throwing all that stuff at, out at you. And um, But especially when it comes to this, 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 this dunk that they attempt, a couple of things about that. First is that, well, number one, White, the term white, would have had no meaning in the context of the ancient world. Okay, so if you had been walking around in Jesus' time and you had gone up and referred to a white person, they would, they would have no idea what you're even talking about. They would think you were, they would think you're talking about a ghost. If you said, oh, I just saw a white person, they would run away because they'd think you're talking about a ghost. It would have no meaning. So to say that there was a, a, Jesus wasn't white, well, yeah, that's that's just a category of person that wouldn't have meant anything to anyone back then. Um, but more precisely, more to the point, no Christian cares about this. This is something you exclusively find on the left among non-Christians obsessing over Jesus's ethnicity and race. Did you know Jesus wasn't white? So no one cares. I have never in my life met an actual professing Christian who talks about this or cares or is it at all focused on it. Um, you know, because Jesus was Jesus is the Son of God come to redeem mankind. That that tends to be the focus, not what his skin pigment happened to be. But we know on the left, I mean, they for them, uh, the the first thing that matters about anybody, including Jesus, is their demographic. You know, first, we got to we got to we got to look at the all the boxes that are checked off. This everything is demographic. It's all about identity. And so they assume that we have the same uh, the same focus when we don't. All right. Um, And yeah, I mean, you know, in in uh, churches where. Traditionally, there's a lot of white people. Maybe you'll see images of Jesus where the skin's a little bit lighter. In churches where there's a higher portion of non-white people, you might see images of Jesus where his skin's a little bit darker. Again, who cares? I mean, we, we don't know exactly what Jesus looked like at all. In fact, uh, we have no illustrations. He didn't pose for any portraits. And so depending on who you are and what you look like and you're kind of imagining Jesus in your head, he might reflect you a little bit, um, and that's just a natural thing that the mind does, but we we don't attach any significance to that. That's something that they that they do on the left, and, that's, and people who are, again, non-Christian. All right, so uh, let's move ahead now to reading the comments. This theocratic dictatorship is on its way. Daily cancellations are the All right. This is from GM, referring, I guess, to the video of the that we played yesterday of the pilots who uh, were recording that UFO sighting. It says, "Attention, bros. This is your captain speaking. This is there's like this wicked orb pulsating in the sky. LMAO. Just don't want y'all to freak out and sh. Let's go, Brandon. Uh, yeah, that is that's kind of that that's the uh, vibe I got from those captains who sounded like normal guys. But again, I don't want normal guys as pilots of of an airplane that I'm on. Uh, late MNF says, you want your pilot to look and sound like Sully Sullenberger. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I want. In fact, Sully Sullenberger, and he's the pilot who landed that uh, plane right in the Hudson. Not an easy thing to do. And I think it's not a coincidence that he was like this uh, white-haired guy with a mustache in his, you know, I think like in his early 50s at the time. I think that's what all pilots should look and sound like. I think, that, in fact, th- th- first of all, the mustache. When I when I get a look at the in the cockpit, and I see a pilot with a mustache, I immediately feel safe. Man or a woman, by the way, no discrimination here. I think that should be a, a legal requirement. And yeah, I do want them to sound, I want them to have kind of that vibe, sound like, like I said, someone from the 40s or 50s. Good enunciation. These pilots you hear sometimes, I mean, it, it kind of, it, it freaks you out because they sound half asleep and they're mumbling. You know, they come over to the intercom, and they say, attention. You can't understand what the hell they're saying. I want to know that you're engaged up there. That's the point. Um, Elizabeth says, the football draft is unethical. The humanity of the players is completely put to the side as teams and fantasy players argue back and forth and weigh the odds. However, it's resoundingly not racist. All races of players get the same treatment. It's like the feminists who call everything rape. When your only moral standard is racial, every social problem you see becomes race-obsessed. Well, you're correct, Elizabeth, that if the NFL draft and the process of recruiting players was dehumanizing then you would be correct in that it dehumanizes everybody. And so it wouldn't be racial even then. But uh, you're wrong in calling it unethical. I mean, this is, these are people who are paid a lot of money to do what they do for a living. And um, their physical fitness, you know, the things that they're able to do with their, with their bodies on the, on the football field or whatever sport they're playing, that's obviously very relevant. And so you need to be able to measure that whatever you want to do for a living you're bringing some kind of you're bringing skills and hopefully certain skills and qualities and traits to the table and your employer to decide if they want to hire you they have to have some way of measuring those skills and in football this is just how they do it so i think to call it dehumanizing is absurd and and by the way if anyone wants to dehumanize me in that way by giving me a 40 million dollar contract i will take it i will i will be a slave in that way if the Daily Wire, if they decided they wanted to dehumanize me and enslave me with a $40 million contract, I will, I will humbly accept it. Um, Daniel says, the cancellation from this episode was by far the best cancellation of all time. I was laughing so hard I was literally crying. Thanks, Matt, I needed that. Well, shame on you then, uh, Daniel. Shame on you. What, what else do I have to do to explain that this is a solemn subject of Joe Biden pooping himself, allegedly? This is this is not fodder for jokes and laughs. I already, I, I canceled you once, now I got to cancel you again, and you're banned from the show. That's what you get. Um, let's see. Uh, P.F. Arabi says the pilot in that specific video from the cockpit pretty clearly says "Let's go Braves," who are in the World Series now. It would have been awesome if he actually said "Let's go Brandon," though. Uh, yeah, that's that's an important point. Also, I mean, we talked about this, the, the ridiculous controversy over a pilot allegedly saying, let's go, Brandon. Well, I think it's, it's probably the most relevant to point out that he, he, he didn't even say that. It sounds like he actually said, let's go, Braves. But if he had said, let's go, Brandon, I agree with you. I wish he had. Um, if he had, it, would, it wouldn't matter. Alex says, Matt, loved how you compared a woman not taking a husband's last name is like not sharing bank accounts. Can you please explain in a more articulate manner, better than myself, why a husband and wife having two separate bank accounts and even a combined one for bills is incredibly dumb and shows a sign of distrust in your spouse? Because this has become common among several people I know. Love the show. Uh, yeah, it is dumb and destructive to your marriage, I think, and um, if it's a complete separation of finances. Now, I know there are some couples I've talked to who... They'll have like separate, you know, little checking accounts where they keep a little bit of spending cash for the week, kind of a, a weekly allowance deal. And um, and they they do that just, just as a way of keeping track of their discretionary spending throughout the week. I mean, I, I think that's fine. As long as they're not actually separate accounts. Like these are accounts you both have your names on. It's just that you've chosen to separate. You, you've, you've chosen to use them in this way and organize your funds that way. Obviously, no problem with that. Um, the issue is when... When when finances are completely separated, as you do find increasingly, in uh, in married couples, and this again, I, th- you know, to me this is not as severe. I know there are a lot of people who see it in the reverse, where having separate finances is a more severe separation than um, having separate names. I think it's not as severe, but it's still it's still not good because it's a lack of trust that you're showing in your spouse, and you're also just showing a determination to, in this significant way, in a financial way, to live a separate life. And there's nothing wrong with living a financially separate life from other people. It's just that if you want that, then don't get married. If you still want to have your financial independence, I hear that too. Well, I want to be financially independent. Then why did you get married? I want to be financially independent. I want to have my own name. Uh, Okay. I mean, you had that already before marriage. So what is it exactly you're trying to get out of marriage? The whole point of marriage is that you're you're coming together as one unit and sharing your life together. If you're not willing to do that, then I would say um, you shouldn't be getting married. And, and, then, and then the other big issue, and the reason why a lot of people do this is um, they're looking towards the future and they're thinking about contingency plans. And, hey, just in case we get divorced, it'd be a lot easier if we had our, our finances separate ahead of time. So you're getting married but you're keeping one foot outside the door. You know, and you're keeping your coat there and your shoes there, right? You're keeping everything ready just in case I got a split real quickly. You can't have a marriage that way. If you go into a marriage that way, preparing ahead of time for the moment when you leave, you'll leave. The the only way to to have a marriage, have a happy marriage, and to, to have a real chance of staying together is if you've ruled that possibility out to begin with. You know, you hear this story about uh, Cortez when he came to, you know, uh, what is now modern-day Mexico, and uh, he had this small band of conquistadors, and they eventually conquered the Aztecs uh, with the help of, of, uh, of some of the neighboring tribes who were happy to be liberated from Aztec rule so they wouldn't be sacrificed and have their, you know, have their hearts cut out anymore. But anyway, um, before he made that march inland, you hear the story about how he burned the ships, you know, basically saying to his men, there's no turning back now. You have to be fully committed to this because you're not you're not going anywhere. We have no way of escaping. The only way out is through. And so in that one specific way, um, I think marriage is kind of similar. You sort of burn the ships and you say this. This is it. We're together now. We're not we're not leaving any escape plans. And hopefully, you know, having hearts ripped out and all that kind of stuff, hopefully there's no similarities there to marriage, but you never know. You know, there's nothing that can drain you uh, both financially and mentally and emotionally than having a lot of debt, especially a lot of high interest debt to pay each month. And if you do have that, you know, the cost can become overwhelming and it can be easy to fall deeper into debt. It becomes this vicious cycle. Uh, But look, it doesn't have to be that way. With a 10 minute call to American financing, you can learn about options to get out of debt faster with help uh, from your mortgage. You'll get a much lower rate and you'll only have one manageable monthly payment to focus on. Makes it a lot easier for you financially and also, as I said, just uh, uh, mentally as well to not have all these things to worry about. It's a strategic solution that could save you up to $1,000 a month plus tens of thousands in the long term. Imagine the difference that can make. Then call American Financing for a free mortgage review. Find out just how much you can save. There's no pressure, no obligation, no upfront or hidden fees. You can even skip uh, two mortgage payments So uh, if you want to take advantage of this, you got to call American Financing, and you got to do it now. 866-569-4711. That's 866-569-4711, or visit AmericanFinancing.net. All right, let's get now to our daily cancellation. So tonight, with any luck, the World Series will come to a close. Um, If the Braves beat the Astros in Game 6, they'll have won the Series and the World Champion Trophy. And uh, best of all, the baseball season will finally be over. It's not that I hate baseball. Anytime I try to watch it, I can't stay awake long enough to develop any strong feelings about it. But I do think that baseball is a fine activity for children, especially uh, fat children who need some physical activity but aren't fit enough to play a real sport yet. I think it's great for that. My main issue with baseball as a spectator sport is that it involves far too much standing and sitting. At any given moment during any play, 95% of the people on both sides have nothing to do. The entire team on offense is sitting down except for the guy at bat. And on defense, the, the majority of the guys in the field won't be involved in the play even if the batter hits the ball. If I want to watch people standing or sitting around bored and despondent, interspersed with brief moments of moderate physical exertion, I'll, I'll go to the DMV or the post office or something. So it's just a long way of saying that baseball has some problems. These are all practical problems and problems that can't be fixed except by introducing, you know, I don't know, you could introduce tackling to baseball or Maybe by arming the outfielders with paintball guns. I'm not sure what that would do exactly, but I'm just thinking out loud, brainstorming. Or else we might need a constitutional amendment to simply abolish baseball entirely. Uh, the media, on the other hand, has been focused on trying to find other problems in baseball, aside from the fact that it's you know, boring as hell. For them, of course, uh, the problem is not entertainment. For them, it's always about race. And as the season is coming to a close... They are in a mad dash to find some way to racialize baseball. And the fact that the Braves are involved has provided them with obvious fodder. So here's CNN, says native groups and advocates are demanding that the Atlanta Braves eliminate the tomahawk chop symbol and gesture from its branding and game day traditions saying the team is perpetuating racist stereotypes as the Braves take the national stage in the World Series. Leaders from the native community said this week it's past time for the Braves to join other professional sports teams, such as the Cleveland uh, Guardians and Washington football team, in removing offensive imagery and mascots, which they say reduce native people down to caricatures. Now, you'll be shocked to learn that Joy Reid over on MSNBC agrees that it's racist for Braves fans to do the tomahawk chop. Then again, she thinks the fans, if they're white, are racist no matter what they do. I mean, they're racist when they breathe. They're racist when they walk into the stadium. They're racist when they put their pants on in the morning. The tomahawk chop is just the racist cherry on top of the bigoted cake. So let's listen to Joy Reid.
1: The World Series between the Atlanta Braves and the Houston Astros is happening now, shifting to the stadium in Atlanta for the next three games which means viewers across the country will soon be subjected to a particular show of fandom that has roiled baseball for decades. And that's the tomahawk chop. Correction, the racist tomahawk chop. A synchronized movement of the arm by Atlanta fans at home games, a gesture and chant promoting stereotypes, caricatures, and frankly, hatred of Native American people. The chop gets its World Series spotlight starting tomorrow as other teams are retiring such appropriation. The Washington football team ditched its former name, a racial slur we will not be repeating here. And the Cleveland Indians banished their extremely offensive logo and also changed their name to the Guardians. This week, baseball commissioner Rob Manfred came out in defense of Atlanta, saying, quote, the Native American community in that region is fully supportive of the Braves program, including the CHOP. But yeah, no, because Native Americans and allies have protested the CHOP for at least 30 years including actual Native American baseball players like Cardinals reliever Ryan Helsley, a member of the Cherokee Nation who was forced to pitch amid the chop when his team faced the Braves. The National Congress of American Indians responded to Manfred, saying Native people are not mascots. Degrading rituals like the tomahawk chop that dehumanize and harm us have no place in American society.
0: Wait, I'm I'm sorry. Let's back up for a second. The tomahawk chop promotes hatred of Native Americans? Is that what you think these fans are saying to themselves as they move their arms like that? Damn Native Americans, I hate them. Damn them. Um, I find that unlikely. In fact, if you, if you hate a certain person or a certain type of person, you wouldn't want to pay tribute to them in that way. You also wouldn't want them as a mascot. If a mascot is supposed to be some kind of degrading insult, why is not any team named themselves, I don't know, the Nazis? How about the Atlanta Nazis? Maybe that should be the new name. I mean, if if that's the idea, right, with a mascot, you're supposed to be insulting somebody. But if they did that, I'm quite sure that the Joy Reads of the world would combust from pure outrage, accusing the team of promoting and celebrating Nazism. And in that case, she would be correct. That's because a mascot is meant to be a positive thing, a promotion, a celebration. Indian mascots and chants are a tribute to Native Americans, not an insult. Why do Native American words and imagery make for good sports mascots? Well, because... Native American culture was a warrior culture. That's what the tomahawk chant uh, and chop specifically harkens back to and pays homage to. Indians were warring people. That's a historical fact. There's no reason to hide from it or deny it. The effort to remove all of the Native American themes from sports is part of a larger uh, uh, effort to sanitize Indian culture and its history, to feminize and sterilize it, to paint the Indians as helpless, weak, victims rather than the formidable forceful and ferocious people that they often were. This is something that the left wishes to do in the past and the present as Native Americans of today are portrayed as petty, you know, limp sorts of people who are constantly crying over sports mascots, somehow gravely injured by team names and stadium chants. I don't think that the majority really are so fragile. And for anyone of any racial or ethnic group, who is that fragile to be that upset about a team mascot, it's all the more reason not to bend to their whim and give them everything they want. And so the people complaining about racism here are of course canceled, but I also have to say that for non-racial reasons, uh, baseball as well is canceled. So all of that is canceled. And we all, we tied together in a nice bow as baseball hopefully comes to a merciful close tonight. We can only pray. And that'll do it for us today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodovsky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Koromina, Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Today on the Ben Shapiro Show, Terry McAuliffe faces the music in Virginia
1: Encounters by playing the race card. Plus, Joe Biden falls asleep during a vital... Climate Change Conference. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen.